0: Good afternoon. I'm Sue O'Connell, in for Kelly Crossley. This week, ending combat operations in Afghanistan is the focus of the NATO summit. Last week, the Massachusetts House of Representatives passed the Valor Act. It's legislation that will strengthen services for veterans, active duty, military personnel, and their families. Today, we're looking at the unique challenges that our Iraq and Afghanistan veterans face as they transition into the lives that they left to go to war. I'm joined today by Paul Reichoff, a veteran of the Iraq War and the founder and executive director of the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. And Coleman Nee is also with us. He's the Secretary of Veterans Services for Massachusetts. We welcome your phone calls, 877 301 8970 that 's eight seven seven three zero one eight nine seven zero if you 're an Iraq or Afghanistan veteran, a family member of someone who has recently returned or is in service at one of those wars, we would love to hear from you eight seven seven three zero one 8970. Paul Reichoff and Secretary Coleman Nee, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you. Good Um, afternoon.
0: Coleman Nee, I want to start with you uh, just to kind of shape the numbers for us here in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, Where do we fall in the range of percentage of enlisted people uh, returning in terms of uh, in comparison to other states or other regions?
1: Yeah, it's actually, uh, thank you for having me, Sue. So it's, it's actually a very good question. Um, we look at a lot of data in terms of veterans population here in Massachusetts. There is approximately 385,000 veterans residing here in the Commonwealth. Uh, the vast majority of those veterans are Vietnam-era veterans or above. Um, the The numbers of Iraq and Afghanistan vets... Uh, tend to be a lot smaller just by virtue of the fact that we don't have compulsory service and, and we do an, you know basically an overutilization of our Guard and Reserve forces. So to put it in comparison, between 1941 and 1946, about 900,000 new veterans came back here to the Commonwealth from World War II. Uh, since 9-11, 2001, we just might have about 37,000 new veterans here in the Commonwealth over a span of 11 years.
0: Um, uh, Paul Rykoff, I I always find that uh, veterans and mothers tend to fall into the same category in America, where we do a lot of lip service. Uh, We -hmm. talk a lot about how we care about mothers, how we care about veterans. But in the end, when it comes down to legislation and actual support, there isn't very little available. And, you know, as much as it's great to see yellow ribbons on cars and supporting veterans and our, our Girl Scout troops, collecting uh, granola bars to send overseas. When veterans return, it's a very different world, isn't it?
2: It really is. And I think it's important to note that many of the veterans are mothers. About mm-hmm. 15 percent of our troops coming home are, are female uh, and tens of thousands of them are mothers. But I think you're right in that we're, we're 10 years into war now and there has been a lot of lip surface. There have been a lot of yellow ribbons. But what we see is still a staggering rate of unemployment, skyrocketing suicide, uh, huge mental health challenges, and really uh, across the nation, the inability of our systems to respond, um, whether it's been the VA at the federal level or local Local nonprofits that are maxed out, we're seeing a new surge. We've talked in the last few years about the surge of, of troops into Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, in the next few years, we're going to see a surge of veterans coming home. About 2.4 million have served in Iraq and Afghanistan since 9-11. It is a small percentage, less than one half of 1%. So we're the less than 1% if you think about the, the country. Um, but, but it is a huge need coming home. And, and we're really trying to play catch up here. Uh, you know, in, in the state of Massachusetts, the official numbers are 7% unemployment for Iraq and Afghanistan vets, and I think that's probably on the conservative side. We see about a 17% rate nationally for IAVA members. Uh, and, and that's not just a, a social concern, but I think it's a wasted opportunity. These folks aren't just charity. They're an investment, and they will go on to be great leaders in business and in our communities, but we've got to step up and, and do more now.
0: Paul, why can't we get this right? I mean, this is not th- this is not a new thing happening that, that soldiers come home, uh, and regardless of... Uh, their state whether they're you know perfectly fine and everything's great or or worse america tends to have this challenge on what do we do with the returning veterans i mean my gra- my grandfather served in world war 1 and came home with mustard gas poisoning and right. the services that were available to him then seem like there are less now available to veterans returning in in some ways i mean obviously the problems are different but in some ways exactly the same
2: they are. I mean, you had the bonus march after World War I. And after World War II, I think it was really a model for, for an adequate response by the federal government. You had massive housing and a robust GI bill and really a connected country. After Vietnam, we confused the people with the policy. There were, there were a lot of confusions around blaming the warriors for the war. And I think that got in the way of our ability to support our veterans. Now, I think Secretary nee touched on it. We're really a very small percentage of the overall population. In World War II, we made up about 12 percent of the overall population now is less than one half, most folks don't have a personal connection. They don't have someone at their dinner table or at their job or in their classroom who's actually served. So it kind of feels like the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are reality TV shows. It's somebody else's problem. It's somebody else's kids. And and I think that's really gotten in the way of our ability to respond. And, And the federal government has really been caught flat footed here. It's great to see the president and first lady stepping up their efforts with joining forces. But if you look at the VA, for example, there was a blockbuster IG report that came out just a few weeks ago that said that Veterans are waiting, on average, a whopping 50 days for a mental health appointment. In places like uh, Spokane, Washington, it was over 80 days. Uh, that's unacceptable. And I think we've really seen our, our bureaucracy caught flat-footed and unable and, and to respond to not just mental health claims, but traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress disorder, women's issues. It, it kind of runs the gamut. And I think folks need to understand that this is not okay. The situation is not under control, and we've really got to mobilize quickly to, to catch up.
0: Secretary Coleman, the uh, obviously— uh, folks are returning from battle, returning from war, returning from service, and want to reenter the workforce. Want to uh, many uh, left their jobs, left their families. Many come back with great skills, are or just looking to reconnect. And it clearly, is a very difficult economic environment for all of us, but especially for returning soldiers. What tell me about this Valor Act and and what it means uh, here in the state of Massachusetts?
1: <clears throat> well, thank you. Um, so the Valor Act. Um, is essentially uh, – was, was driven actually by Senator Mike Rush, uh, State Senator Mike Rush, who himself has uh, uh, just returned uh, last January from service uh, overseas in Iraq after a year. And, and it looks at a lot of the different facets that Paul was talking about in terms of, you know, how do we maximize and, and, and really, you know, uh, utilize uh, the talent coming back to us here uh, from football with prior military service. Uh, it has uh, provisions in it for transfer, easily transferring military licenses over to civilian licenses, commercial driver's licenses, um, uh, professional licenses of that nature. It looks at transitioning military education credits into civilian education credits. Uh, it looks at protection of civil service jobs with veterans preference, which uh, which is very important as well. Uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of facets that, that are, have really drilled down on a lot of policy issues that we're hearing from veterans have ended up becoming obstacles or stumbling blocks in, in trying to get their services or or trying to get access to jobs or, or, or utilizing their military skills. But <clears throat> I think it's also important to recognize, and, and Paul touched on a little bit, about the service delivery system that we have here um, in both in the Commonwealth and in the country. Massachusetts is a little unique uh, in that we have uh, a pretty extensive veteran service network. We're the only state in the nation that has uh, mandatory veteran service officer in every city or town. My department alone spends $70 million a year in, in extra veterans benefits, non-reimbursable from the VA uh, into people's pockets, uh, veterans and, and, uh, and Gold Star families as well. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of work being done individually at each state level, which is different than, than what's being done nationally at the VA, um... And and I think as you move forward in veteran services, you'll see the VA relying a lot more on that on-the-ground expertise.
0: You're listening to 89.7 WGBH and online at wgbh.org, and we're talking about our Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. I'm joined by Paul Reichoff and Coleman Nee. Paul Rykoff is a veteran of the Iraq War and founder and executive director of the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Coleman Nee is the Secretary of... Veteran Services for Massachusetts, we invite you to join our conversation, 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. Paul, talk a little bit about uh, your experience, how you came uh, to to join the military and your experience, and and what has led you to your activism since.
2: Sure. Well, I grew up here in New York, and actually my first active duty assignment was— um, being called to respond to Ground Zero after the attacks on 9-11. Um, But I went to school in Massachusetts. I went to college in Amherst and enlisted after I graduated in 1998. And back then, you know, we didn't really know that Iraq or or Afghanistan were going to be on the radar. But the world changed dramatically after 9-11. And I spent about a year on the ground uh, with the Army as a rifle platoon leader for the 3rd Infantry Division. So we were there during the first year of the war, which was pretty interesting to say the least. And when I came home, what I saw is that the 38 guys under my command were really struggling to connect. They didn't have anywhere to go that could guide them through the process. Process, or even to find each other. The existing veteran service organizations weren't built for 27-year-olds, 28-year-olds coming home uh, after doing multiple tours. So we really started on a website. Uh, we had a website where veterans could connect and share resources, and now that, that's grown into IAVA, and we've got about 200,000 members nationally, uh, and our programs help about 200,000 folks go to school. We've helped hundreds get jobs, and we've provided mental health support to about 30,000. So it, it comes from the spirit of, of what I had in the infantry, which is adapt, improvise, and overcome. You know, we, we can't just wait around for the federal government or, or someone else to help us out. We want to help ourselves. Uh, and I think that's that's the power and the ingenuity you see from this generation of veterans coming home. They want an opportunity. They want to continue to serve. Uh, and if folks are, are out there listening, if you're an Iraq and Afghanistan veteran, you know, go to our website, iava.org. You can connect. And I think it's especially important as we go into Memorial Day this weekend. It, it's, a, it's a really striking illustration of how separate our military military, and civilian population is. Memorial Day is the time when most Americans go to the beach and we go to the cemetery. Uh, It's a really hard time for many veterans, and we want them to know that there are other veterans out there. We'll be organizing on the ground around the country and at the national ceremony in Arlington, uh, and we encourage civilian supporters come on out and support us as well. Uh, We need everybody's help to continue to move this forward and to support our veterans.
0: Secretary, one of the challenges in this war, uh, or these wars, is the impact on the families, uh, you know, many of the enlisted folk uh, were, were not, didn't enlist during wartime and didn't expect to have multiple tours of duty. And the impact that that has, uh, not only with them being away, which somehow the American psyche is able to deal with, but upon their return. I heard a, uh, a news report uh, a few days ago of a, a woman talking about how her normal is when her husband isn't there you know, when he's off serving. And then he returns and, and you know, everything is good, except he's mucking up everything, uh, you know, because they're just not used to having two parents or two decision makers and just the challenge of getting back into that that groove. What what are some of the services in the state of Massachusetts that are available to families upon reentry?
1: You know, that's a very good question, actually. And, and just, to, pre- and just to, to sort of give you our philosophy on this. We don't believe that that service members deploy. We believe families deploy because we do know it's a sacrifice and it is a challenge to have someone overseas. Um, One of the other uh, 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 drawbacks that people don't recognize all the time is is in Massachusetts at least, we don't have the large-scale bases that they have in many other states. Many of our deployed members are are out of the reserve and out of the guard. They're the only people in their neighborhood that have deployed. and, And so that can seem very isolating for a lot of those families as well. Uh, We do have a strong network of family support network, uh, uh, military family support networks. The uh, National Guard here has a very robust military family readiness uh, uh, group. There's a number of nonprofits that we work with, military friends, Easter Seals uh, across the board that we use to connect and, and, and help people navigate a very complex system. Um, to To get them those benefits, whether they be you know everything from financial assistance to uh, a little help with uh, uh, support uh, for children, uh, early education vouchers, things of that nature so it 's it's, it's interesting in that you bring that up because what a lot of people don 't always realize too is when people deploy, they go on military pay we 've had a number of families who uh, would be making a certain income level in their civilian job deploy on on Title 10 status in the Guard, and and that pay drops significantly because now they're on a military pay scale. So we're asking these people to go overseas for a year, but we're also asking their families to take a financial hit at a time when, when they probably need assistance even more. So mm-hmm. it's, it's been a, a tremendous sacrifice on behalf of the last 10 years. For those families, and 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 certainly, we want to make sure that we're there to support them in any way we can.
0: I'm Sue O'Connell, in for Kelly Crossley, and we're talking about Iraq and if Af- Afghanistan veterans and the challenges they're facing as they return home from war. I'm joined by Coleman Nee, Secretary of Veterans Services for Massachusetts, and Paul Reichoff founder and executive director of the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Please call us. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Have you join the conversation? 877-301-8970. 877-301-8970. The conversation continues on WGBH Boston Public Radio.
3: Funding for our programs comes from you. And the Museum of Science, now showing To the Arctic, presented by Warner Brothers Pictures and IMAX, a story of love, family, and survival in the harshest place on Earth. Tickets and more info online at MOS.org. And Celebrity Series of Boston. My primary concern is box office. Jack Wright, Director of Marketing and Communications. When we make GBH a part of our overall marketing plan, It's the difference between a piece of advertising in print or 60 seconds somewhere versus an entity whose existence is backing you up. To learn more, visit wgbh.org slash sponsorship. Next time on The World, an exam taken at age 11. The stakes were high. It was daunting. You knew that a lot hung on what was to happen on this day. Britain once used a single test to decide which students would go on to elite schools. Looking back now, it was certainly the biggest single determinant of my future. Why some want to bring that test back, next time on The World. Coming up at 3 o'clock here at
0: 89.7 WGBH.
3: This summer, you'll turn to public radio to keep up with The Summer Olympics The Presidential Elections Your Summer Reading List The Boston Red Sox Big summer movies with computer-created aliens, battles, and creatures Help 89.7 get to the stories you care about and give a little bit more in support of a lot more coverage. To go above and beyond with an additional gift, just click the Donate button at WGBH.org. Morning Essentials, Help to get your brain going. You're
4: listening to Morning Edition from NPR News.
3: Bob C and Morning Edition. Right here on WGBH Boston Public Radio, a good Wednesday here morning on WGBH Radio.
0: Welcome back to the Cali Crossley Show. I'm Sue O'Connell sitting in for Callie Crossley, and we're talking about the unique challenges that our Iraq and Afghanistan veterans are facing. As they transition into the lives that they left to go off to war, I'm joined by Paul Reichoff and Coleman Knee. Paul Reichoff is a veteran of the Iraq War and founder and executive director of the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Coleman Knee is the secretary of Veterans Services for Massachusetts. Please give us a call. Join the conversation eight seven seven three zero one. 8970, if you're an Iraq or Afghanistan veteran, what has it been like for you to re enter civilian life? 877 301 8970. We have a call. Amy is calling us from Lakeville. Amy, welcome to the Callie Crossley Show. What's on your mind?
4: Hi. um, I just wanted to say thank you uh, for your program today. I'm the wife of a National Guard member, and um, for a long time, I you know, it's it's very hard to connect with people, and a lot of people just don't understand what National Guard families are going through when their soldiers deployed.
0: What are some of the challenges that that you, in particular, and your family are facing?
4: Um, well, my husband is home right now. He was deployed um, last year, from September 2010 to September 2011. Um, so when he first got home, um, just getting into the routine, like you had uh, mentioned, reintegration. Um there's another person there to make to make those decisions <laughs> right. not just me anymore. Um and actually our daughter was born while he was um he was home on military leave but had to leave a week after she was born so that was kind of a unique challenge. He was getting to know her, getting to to be a parent when he first got back as right. well, which he had never experienced.
0: And how, have you, how did you reach out, and how do you reach out to, to other families and other, other uh, peers?
4: Uh, well, the Family Readiness Group is a great program, and we've, uh, we're a part of that. Um, and the online community, Military OneSource, is, um, is a great resource as well.
0: Well, Amy, thanks uh, for your call, and thank you to your family for your service. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Secretary Coleman. That that speaks to an issue of of uh, you brought up of not having a major base here in Massachusetts, but also finding a way for families and service members to connect.
1: Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, it's it's a, it's a story we hear quite a bit. Um, people feel isolated within these communities because they don't know anybody else who's deployed, uh, other than you know other other families that are in the unit. But again, those can be spread out over a over a, some geographical distance. Um, we do know also that uh, coming back um, – and I'm assuming uh, Amy's husband was – if he was with the Mass Guard, came back with 182nd. Uh, those folks served a year in Afghanistan. I mean in their – and they were back here, uh, short-term transition in New Jersey and then and then, you know, we met them at Logan Airport and they were back in their living rooms. That's a jarring transition for anyone. We know in the past we've had, you know – People have had the ability to, to decompress. I mean my own father, you know, coming back from World War II, was on a troop ship for three months or two months, you know, uh, uh, decompressing before he ended up back here at home. Um, the, you know, the fact that we have people and, – and Paul may have been in this situation where, you know, you can be walking patrol in a combat zone and within a week and a half to two weeks later be standing in your living room. Uh, you know, that's difficult mm-hmm. and it's not always post-traumatic stress. But we do know that a lot of uh, a lot of folks have uh, have some readjustment time and and some readjustment issues that they have to work through, and we want to make sure that the support is there to help them. Uh, and they should know people that are dealing with this. That there is support, uh, both through my department and, and IAVA and other organizations, uh, that can give you some advice and, and guidance on how to make that transition smoother.
0: Paul Rykoff, we always seem to talk, especially in the media, of these these extremes, you know, like this post-traumatic stress issues, when, as Secretary uh, Nees points out, it, it would be jarring for anyone to go from one spot to another. I mean, some of us have a hard enough time coming back from vacation and going to work on Monday, you right. know. I mean, it's not, right. it's not a stretch to think that that's a challenge. You write a great piece uh, from last year at CNN.com, The Iraq War is Mine, Yours, and Ours. And you really try to tie together all of the issues for for Americans to understand that we we have ownership in, in the families and veterans coming home.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, A- Amy's story should should resonate with folks if you think about, you know, how much she and her family had to go through for that year. Um, and the Secretary's right. It can be very isolating. I mean, when we deploy as soldiers, our families go along for the ride. And, and it's another example of, of how our entire national system really wasn't prepared. When I was deployed to Baghdad, my, my girlfriend was in Brooklyn and she was the only one on her block. There was nobody else that she could talk to about what was happening in Iraq or the stress of her job or just trying to, to deal with having a, a loved one deployed in a combat zone. So that can be incredibly isolating. And I think what we try to encourage folks to think about is don't just wait for the president or the VA or their federal government to get involved. This is going to have to happen at a Community level. If you look across Boston, you know there there are so many um, nonprofits stepping up, and across the state, you've got community colleges. The Red Sox raised about two million dollars this weekend for their home base program. And and if there is kind of a a silver lining, I I think it's how many folks are graduating across the state this weekend under the GI Bill. Over five hundred thousand Iraq and Afghanistan veterans have used this incredible benefit that we passed in two thousand eight. It's still got some bumps, but now you've got graduates coming out of school, and they can pass that benefit onto family members, onto spouses. And if you haven't thought about it, if you're struggling to get employed, look at the new GI Bill as an option. Go to newgibill.org. IAVA has set up a resource center website that can help you understand and navigate that benefit. But across the state this weekend, we've got a new generation of leaders that are graduating, that served in combat and want to continue to serve throughout the Commonwealth and throughout the country. And we think that that's a very exciting and historic point.
0: 877 301 8970 is the number for you to dial to join the conversation. 877 301 8970. Secretary Need, talk a little bit about the ways that uh, the most effective ways to connect with veterans coming back. You have a peer to peer program uh, which really helps. Uh, returning veterans to navigate the maze that is always the bureaucracy mm-hmm. of of, uh, of uh, what our, our folks before us did that they thought was a good idea that may not work now. So you do have a great program though to help folks.
1: We, we do. Um, uh, our SAVE program is Statewide Advocacy for Veterans Empowerment, uh, and it hits on what Paul was just talking about, which is essentially there's lots of nonprofits and local and federal government programs, and they're spread out across uh, a spectrum. Uh you know, the problem I found looking at this system uh, wasn't so much a lack of, of resources as a as a misconnection or inability to access all resources from one door. So you'd find a lot of places where you'd get A, one benefit, but it wouldn't necessarily connect you to everything else you were eligible for. Uh, what we've done is trained uh, Iraq and Afghanistan vets because we know from our – the evidence is showing us at least here in Massachusetts – that peer to peer navigation and peer to peer outreach uh, from fellow Iraq and Afghanistan veterans uh, to their counterparts uh, uh, to their uh, compatriots here in the state um, really uh, uh, has a level of credibility and trust that that uh, either non veterans or even veterans of other generations. Uh, uh, can have a hard time overcoming. And then training those folks, those peers, in all of those resources and then having them go out and help those veterans and help those families navigate the system and get hooked up and be able to work through the bureaucracy. And when they come up with stumbling blocks, be able to, again, give them the assistance to be able to get through the red tape and get to everything that they need. And through maximization of that and and really uh, utilizing that system uh, more fully, we think we've been able to really help a lot more veterans here in the Commonwealth than is taking place in other areas of the country.
0: Paul, my dad was a World War II veteran and, and spent a fair amount of time at our local uh, VFW post, the Veterans of Foreign War and the American Legion post. And I'm wondering, is is there that sort of camaraderie organized and available to to veterans returning today?
2: It is, but it's evolved. I think back in that time period, you had veterans halls that were really the linkage to the veterans community. There were places where where guys could get together and tell war stories and drink beer and share resources. And that worked for that generation. The reality is that that that's kind of like, uh, if you use the book-selling analogy, that that was Borders, and we're Amazon. We've got to use Facebook. We've got to use social communities. We've got a very robust program called Community of Veterans that brings veterans together in the same way online. And it also provides employment support, uh, GI Bill Information and mental health support, because the, the biggest issue they do deal with right now is isolation. And an issue we haven't touched on is the skyrocketing suicide rate. Mm-hmm. We're losing more soldiers to suicide than to combat. Uh, for the last month, we had 27 suicides in the active duty Army alone. That's just Army, just active duty. Uh, It's been said that as many as 18 veterans kill themselves each day here at home. That's veterans of all generation. And we know what they need is hope and they need connection. They need to know they're not alone and there are other veterans who can take them down the path to a successful life. So we want vets to know there is help out there. You don't have to be alone. You don't have to be isolated. And and often it's online where that connection is going to come, whether it's through our Facebook page or Twitter. We want vets to know there are other vets out there, and and we've got your back.
0: Coleman, the suicide rate uh, was actually, thank you for for bringing that up, Paul, was was, was something that I I wanted to spend a a good amount of time on, especially with the as I said, the the sort of extreme ideas of of how terrible it can be to return, but also some of just the basic challenges of of needing some mental health care. And I I dare say that this generation of warriors might be a bit more open than prior generations to um, recognizing that they might need help or at least seeking some assistance. And how is Massachusetts structured to, to both connect with veterans and their families who may need some mental health services and then deliver them?
1: well I, that safe team I just mentioned actually that was funded by uh by the Department of Public Health suicide prevention uh funding uh These folks are at their core suicide prevention team uh The approach we take to suicide prevention is rather than waiting for veterans to really bottom out and have to you know have that late night phone call where you're 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 in a crisis mode It's trying to reach them as early as we can uh and credential the services and credential uh some of the good you know resources that we have here. For for helping them to readjust and helping them to get better, this program was created um, uh, with a lot of uh, a lot of influence, but none more so uh, than the Lucy family, Kevin and, uh, and Joyce Lucy of uh, of Belchertown, Massachusetts. Um, their son Jeffrey uh, was a Marine uh, deployed to Af- uh, deployed to Iraq, came back here, and uh, unfortunately took his own life after not being able to access resources or services through the VA and other other areas. Uh, We ended up spending about an hour to two hours talking to Kevin and Joyce about what would have helped their son, what would have connected with them. And their their basic message to us was, look, we tried to help him in any way we could, but we didn't have an understanding of where he had been. We hadn't served uh, in the military. We hadn't even served – even people we knew had served in the military hadn't been in his specific shoes. And somebody who had – somebody who had been down that road and could talk to them and could relate to them in a way that – that uh, Jeffrey would feel comfortable trusting and knowing, um, you know, would have made a better difference. And that's really, you know, uh, our primary driver right now is in reaching these people through these peer delivery systems.
0: We're going to go to the phones now and speak with Maureen, who's calling us from Norton. Maureen, welcome to the Callie Crossley Show. What's on your mind? Maureen? Waiting for Dr. Maureen.
4: Curry. Oh, there yeah. you are, Maureen. Try again. Yeah. I'm I'm calling for two reasons. One, I would like to commend Secretary Mee and all the veteran service agents across this state. My dad was a veteran service agent in the community south of Boston for 41 years, and he instilled in all of his children a great respect for all the veterans um, in this country. Secondly, my question relates to the nurses who are serving in Afghanistan and Iraq. They're not really combat veterans, yet they are the ones that are working to ensure that many of these brave young men make it home through their serious injuries. And their position is somewhat unique than a combat veteran, so I'm wondering what particular services and what recognition is being given to the, the healthcare personnel who are working over there.
1: Great question,
0: Maureen. Thank you.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, Maureen, th- first of all, thank you for the compliment. Um, the... Um, yeah it is it is a challenge right now in terms of uh, uh non infantry personnel that we see coming back here who have been exposed to combat situations we know uh uh you know this has not been a traditional conflict uh, these have been you know more insurgencies and, and and in areas where you know uh many of our uh, supporting units uh transportation units medical units administration units uh, have uh, have you know been exposed to you know combat situations, mortar attacks, uh, IED explosions, things of that nature, and and we do need to support these people. Uh, uh, we the 804th Medical Brigade, uh, uh, medical battalion rather, uh, is here in the Commonwealth. Uh, they are, we've connected with them on uh, a number of areas where we're sort of learning. How we can better integrate them uh, into uh, vet service organizi- into uh, vet service uh, resources, uh, into the vast network of community and 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 major teaching hospitals here that we have in the Commonwealth. As was mentioned earlier, the home base uh, program out of uh, Mass General is an outstanding example of, uh, of 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 the private sector and and, and public hospital sector stepping up. And we also know that, uh, as Paul mentioned before earlier, uh, women veterans, uh, although uh, n- unlike previous generations, uh, not all of our nurses or or, uh, or medical support people are female I and mean, in fact uh, that number is very mixed right now. Uh, but we do know that women veterans are the fastest growing segment of our veterans' population uh, we uh, We know in the Massachusetts we at least we have right now twenty eight thousand women veterans, and that number is growing. And we need to be able to integrate those women veterans into a health care delivery system, into a, a, a veterans resource delivery system that was set up primarily for males and uh, large numbers of males returning from World War II. And the challenge right now for those of us in veteran services and those of us advocates like Paul and, and IEVA and, and other organizations is how do we look at our system and see is this the best system to deliver care and resources and benefits for those veterans coming back, is this set up for them? Is it the best way to set this up? And if not, how can we adjust? Uh, how can we adjust fire here, so to speak, and and uh, and set up a system that's going to make sense for them?
0: Paul, what what can the average person do? You know, I, I was I was raised to always uh, seek out folks that I see in uniform and thank them for their service, uh, and to Give a hand whenever, whenever necessary, you know, anytime that there's a, a fundraiser or a, a, a granola bar raiser, as, as uh, we've become famous for. I've done that. But what can the average person do, uh, especially if they, they don't see someone who is in service or, or know of a family? How can they support returning veterans?
2: I think that, that, that is a, a great question, and, and one easy way is to go to our website. If you go to IAVA.org, we've got uh, things you can do online and things you can do in your community that can get you involved and get your family involved. We want to communicate to folks that you don't have to be a veteran to support the veterans movement. Memorial Day is coming up in just a few days, and that's a really important time to connect with our community, to show your gratitude and remember the folks we've lost. We're going to have a go silent campaign where we ask folks around the country just to take Take a minute to reflect no matter where you are at 1201 on Monday when the wreath is laid at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. You also need to donate, help all these community groups that you're hearing about. These nonprofits have really been hit hard in the economy, but their program demand is going up. So if you see a good nonprofit in your area, please donate and encourage your friends to do the same, because a lot of people think the government's got this covered. And only about 55 percent of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans even use the VA. So that means they're, they're hitting these community-based nonprofits, and those are the folks that really need help. And also, finally, going into November, I'd say vote on veterans issues. Ask your elected leaders and your candidates, what are they doing to lower the VA backlog? What are they doing to reduce veterans unemployment? How are they dealing with, with challenges facing returning National Guardsmen and reservists? Put them on the spot. And if they say they, they support the troops, ask them how. Uh, that, that could be one of the most important things we do going into a, a very contested election season where we hope veterans issues might be the one thing we can all agree on. That should be the one issue we can all unite on and, and finally move this ball forward. Secretary
0: knee one of the things that uh employers may think of when they think of hiring returning vets is is uh folks who are out in the field, you know, mm-hmm. in, uh, holding a gun, uh shooting and and doing that, but as one our caller beautifully said there is a variety of duties and tasks that go into fighting a war and a variety of skills that come back. So one of your challenges is to spread the word that there are very qualified, highly educated uh, uh, folks coming back who are ready to get
1: hired. Yeah, I mean it's, it's really been um, – it's eye-opening for a lot of the business groups that we speak to because I'll say picture in your mind a veteran. And the first thing that will come to their mind is a Kevlar helmet and a rifle and a foxhole on uh, a flak jacket and and you know you spend a lot of time talking about the fact that that's a one segment of the population of the military uh, that there are vast support networks for those infantrymen who um, that involve cutting edge transportation uh, the air force is heavy into cyber command and cyber security medical administration finance communications, logistics. I spoke to the Mass Retailers Association and asked them, you know, if you're looking at hiring veterans – it's not only about just bringing someone down who served in the military. You should be working with us to try to identify uh, military occupational specialties or ratings within the military of folks who worked in logistics, worked in transportation, worked in finance and administration. Because not only can we provide you with people that you want to hire because it feels good, we can pay, provide you with people who you want to hire because it's going to be good for the bottom line.
0: We've been talking about our Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. I've been joined by Coleman Nee and Paul Reichoff. Paul Rykoff is a veteran of the Iraq War and founder uh, and executive director of the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Coleman Nee is the Secretary of Veterans Services for Massachusetts. Thanks to both of you. Up next, we continue the conversation with the author and subject of the book, Fahim Speaks, A Warrior Actor's Odyssey, from Afghanistan to Hollywood and back. You're listening to WGBH Boston Public Radio.
3: WGBH programs exist because of you and Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates, offering complete health care for you and your family. With 21 locations across greater Boston, Harvard Vanguard welcomes new patients and accepts most insurance. CareMadeEasy.org, an affiliate of Atrius Health. And New England Subaru, featuring the 2012 all-wheel drive Subaru Outback, recipient of the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety Award. Dealer listing at NewEnglandSubaru.com and the growing number of WGBH sustainers who manage their contributions to public radio with the help of monthly installments and automatic renewals. Learn more about the ease of sustaining membership at WGBH.org. On the next Fresh Air, Sasha Baron Cohen talks about his new comedy, The Dictator, in which he plays the corrupt, tyrannical ruler of a fictional oil-rich nation in Northern Africa.
2: I am for free press,
5: fair elections, and equal rights for women. <laughs> I can't say that.
3: Sasha Baron Cohen on the next Fresh Air.
4: This afternoon at 2 here on 89.7 WGBH.
3: It's time to spring into action for the 47th annual WGBH Spring Auction. Bid on fine jewelry, gift certificates, exciting vacations, weekend getaways, and even a brand new Toyota Prius donated by your New England Toyota dealer. Every winning bid supports WGBH radio and television. So not only will you get a great deal, you'll feel great while you're doing it. But act fast. The spring auction ends on May 31st. Place your bids now at auction.wgbh.org. Local issues, local talk. Outside Plymouth, officials and citizens are concerned that Pilgrim is the same make and model as three reactors that experienced fires and explosions. 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
0: Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. I'm Sue O'Connell, sitting in for Callie. I'm joined by Michael Moffitt and Fahim Fazli. Michael Moffitt is a retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel and co-author of Fahim Speaks, A Warrior Actor's Odyssey, From Afghanistan to Hollywood and Back. Fahim Fa- Fazli is the subject of Fahim Speaks. Welcome to both of you.
6: Thank you. Hey, Sue. Yes. How are you? Good. This is Mike. I'm uh, actually in South Dakota, en route from New Hampshire to California for our book launching, and appreciate you having us on your show.
0: My pleasure. I'm glad you pulled over to, to take time with us, and thanks both of you for, for your service, uh, especially uh, in light of this upcoming Memorial Day. Uh, i, I got to tell you, anytime that you can work the words warrior, actor, and odyssey into a title, you know you've probably got a bestseller coming, right? How did you two work? Uh, how did you two work together and meet and, and get to know each other to to bring this forward?
6: Well, Fahim, are you there out in California? Yes,
5: yes I'm listening.
6: I'll let Fahim start. Uh, I I met him in Afghanistan, and I'll let Fahim set that up.
5: Sure. Uh, uh, thank you, ma'am, to invite us for our, and your show, and I want to thank you from bottom of my heart. Uh, You're supporting our military. And how we met uh, was in Afghanistan in 2009 and 2010. And I, uh, we were in a meeting uh, in Dilaram, Afghanistan, Elman province, the most dangerous place in Afghanistan. And I saw Lieutenant Colonel Michael Moffat. Uh, we were sitting across the table, uh, and he asked me what I do for a living. I was telling her, I'm uh, an actor in Hollywood, and he asked me, what are you doing here? I'm just, I want to hear, I'm coming to Afghanistan after 30 years to pay my dues for the United States and pay my dues for Afghanistan. To support the beautiful country, gave me a shelter after and after the Soviets uh, kicked all of us out of uh, three million uh, Afghan out, and uh, thanks to Ronald Reagan to give us the shelter for this beautiful country, and that's how it started to. And he says, "Why don't you write a book?" And I told him, uh, "I'm recording everything. I'm about to write a book, and there was the right time, the right moment." And I say, "He's a." Historian for Marines, I'm say I ask him, "Why don't you help me up?" I'm, uh, that's how our conversation starts.
0: Now, Michael, I'm. I'm certain you've heard a lot of interesting stories. What was it about uh, Fahim's story that that made you motivated to tell it to a broader audience?
6: Well, you've already picked up on some of this. So, uh, you know, Fahim is somebody who was an immigrant refugee from a terrible place uh, when the Soviets took over Afghanistan in. Uh, 1979, 1980. And this is all in the book. But as I met him in Ram Afghanistan, uh, I was so struck by his uh, wonderful positive energy uh, after all he's been through. He's very charismatic. Uh, everybody seemed to be his brother. Everybody seemed to love him. As I get to know him, um, I, I loved, as the other Marines did, how he loved America. And that really struck a chord with me. And as I know it has with many other people, that here is somebody who is an immigrant refugee from an Islamic culture who's not afraid uh, to stand up for America and go back in the harm's way. And he was, he'd become a Hollywood actor and had a screen actor's guild card and had spending a lot of TV yeah. shows and Fahean, movies. Let's and- talk
0: a little bit about that, too. I mean, you you sure. left and came to America and had sure. uh, a good career going for yourself in Hollywood and, and decided to, to take a break from that, to walk back... Uh, into Afghanistan to put yourself in harm's way. Talk a little bit about what your life was like in Hollywood.
5: Uh, Hollywood was gave me a lot of uh, opportunity to be a cultural technical advisor. I've been a lot of movies as a bad guy. Uh, I've been typecast as a terrorist, which just doesn't bother me. I want to just prove it to them, uh, show them the culture of different languages. And I was in Charlie Wilson War with Tom Hanks, Julia Robert, Philip Hoffman, And Charlie Wilson himself, I was a cultural advisor. We were in Morocco. He said, Fahim, you did such a great job. Why don't you go help the real American? I mean, the real heroes were just fighting in Afghanistan." After uh, President Obama took over 2009, their policy changed from Iraq to Afghanistan, as more focusing in Afghanistan. Then uh, made a decision to want to go pay my dues for this beautiful country. This beautiful country gave me a lot of thanks, so give me a lot of, uh, give me a citizenship, uh, safest from the communists, and I want to go pay them, pay my dues, and I want to earn my American passport, which is I became a citizen 20 years ago. I look at my passport, and I say, uh, what I've done for this country. And I took a break, and I want to join the Marine as a contractor, and I'll go with theirs, pay my dues.
0: Michael, it's, it's, uh, Again, you've you seen a lot, and uh, the early days of Fahim's life in Afghanistan um, are, are incredible and would be hard for most average Americans to really comprehend.
6: Yes, and of course it's on the book, which by the way has a, a blurb from Tom Hanks on the cover – uh, yeah, it's an adventure story. There's a dramatic escape from Afghanistan as a youngster, and his family was split up and eventually reunited. It's a, a adventure story, a love story. Uh, talks about arranged marriages and finding true American love. It's a Hollywood story. Uh, there's a, a, some interesting material on uh, all the people and personalities he worked with in Hollywood. And then and going back with the Marines uh, is the last four chapters, and, and some, I think, of course, I think there's some great stuff there with the wonderful work he did with the, the Marines. The Taliban hated him, put a price on his head because he was so effective as an interpreter bringing together Americans and Afghans.
5: And, Fahim, you, you, you left a... Did you have a baby girl? And I a, have a, a little fa- baby girl. Her name is Sophia. And I'm a very American uh, woman, which is uh, thanks to her. She helped me up a lot. Her name is Amy McPeak, her last name. She's the one pushing me to uh, follow my dream, which is uh, that was my dream to become an actor. My, she's the one who was pushing me to go to help, help this country, and she never stopped me. And I dearly love her. And um, the, the book is dedicated to my mother. My mother just passed away four months ago I'm and dedicated to, to a woman all over the world as well.
0: Now, you had you had a nickname while you were in Afghanistan, and the, the Taliban they called, called me you Hollywood. They called you Hollywood. I mean,
5: The it's, you reason, know. <laughs> uh, Captain Vincent, they don't want to uh, uh, give my real name, because that uh, the place we were there in the Elman province, which is the Pashtun tribes, which is I came from the Pashtun tribe, which is they all know us, my great-grandfather. Uh, that's why they gave me a nickname, because there was a price in my head. They want to kill me, because I was an eye and ear for the... Marine and uh, so make sure I was safe. And Captain Vincent says, uh, why don't you give you a little nickname? And I even the Taliban called me Hollywood. Who's this Hollywood guy? And, and there was, uh, we did a, such a great job. And I'm, I'm so honored to call myself part of the Marine and so honored to call myself American. Americans, America is the best country in the world, and I'm i very appreciate this country. I love this country. I die for this country. That's why I went to Afghanistan, and well, I we almost got killed more than once. But uh, God thanks, nothing happened.
0: Michael, what were some of the, the, the big cultural um, messages that Fahim taught you uh, about the Afghanistan people? What, what were some, you know, I know in the book you touch a little bit about uh, the importance of revenge within that uh, or the significance of revenge within that country and uh, issues in regard to how women are treated and what can be done to help women in Afghanistan. Were those two of the major ones or were there others?
6: Well, I learned from Fahim's experiences there of talking to him and other Marines. Uh, yes, he emphasized the need to understand Pashtunwali, which is, the, as you mentioned, the code of revenge and, and how we don't want to give people a reason to seek revenge. You also mentioned the, the dynamic of women. Ironically, this book uh, is dedicated to women, uh, and that really is the key uh, culturally for Afghanistan to eventually get to a better place is to empower women. Uh, that's another big piece of it. And there's other things too, like uh, dealing with dogs. Interestingly, you know, a lot of dogs sometimes were, were shot because they were territorial and sometimes would attack uh, uh, NATO forces uh, moving into villages. And Fahim emphasized the need to, you know, uh, not to uh, shoot the dogs. Uh, you know, little things like that, and teaching Marines, uh, you know, language and, and appreciation of uh, Islamic culture. Uh, it made a big difference. Plus, he was funny, and the and the, the people liked him and laughed, and the, and the Taliban hated somebody who made the people laugh.
0: Fahim, what what can you tell us about uh, about Afghanistan, about the culture of Afghanistan, that that you know is a, is good news for us to know, or something that's important for Americans to know, especially as we work toward our separation from Afghanistan.
5: Afghanistan. is, uh, First of all, my advice to American government: they should educate them first. We're so behind. We're so behind. Take years, years to get educated. Once we are educated and give us, stop the corruption. There is uh, so many corruptions going. We pay our tax money in this country, and our money go over theirs. But give gives uh, handed to the wrong group or theirs. And, and we need to focus on education force first, first. And we shouldn't leave Afghanistan at all, because Afghanistan is located between seven countries, which is surrounded by all nuclear weapons they have. Afghanistan is the more, most important place for America. And I'm honored to call myself American and Afghan-American, which is protect the country and this country as well. And uh, they should bring education more. Because I saw it. Uh, still, we don't have a water. We still we don't have a wheels, We don't still we don't have electricity, which is the money go the wrong hand.
0: So, Michael, what's up for the book? It's uh, soon to be released. How can folks get it? Uh, do you have a website? Sure, oh, sure.
6: And I- glad glad you asked, uh, Susan uh, Fahim speaks. By the way, Fahim is spelled F A H I M. Uh, some folks are going to F A H E E M, but it's F A H I M. Fahim speaks. Yes, Fahimspeaks.com is the website. I'm actually headed to California for later this month. May 30th is the traditional Memorial Day. It happens to be my birthday, and it happens to be Fahim's birthday. So on May 30th, we're you're your
0: your a, a, um it's your brother from another mother.
5: That looks yeah, like it. That wasn't meant <laughs> to be. you <laughs> said.
6: That. That's come up many times, brother from an <laughs> Afghan mother. And, and you
5: guys can go uh, Amazon dot com, and Nobles. We uh, pay him to speak. And I want to point
6: that. out uh, real quick, uh, WPG Warrior Publishing Group, uh, Captain Dale Die and his wife, Doctor Julia Die, they are the publisher and editor uh, of of the book. And uh, yeah, May thirtieth, book launching in uh, near San Clemente, uh, California. My birthday, his birthday. Wounded Warriors uh, is going. Going to get a, a, a percentage of the sales uh, from from May, and uh, so that ties in very nicely. Well, great. As well. We,
0: we look for it. Thanks so much for joining with us. I've been speaking with Michael Moffat and Fahim Thank Fazli. You for... Michael Moffat is you, a retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel and co author of Fahim Speaks, a warrior <laughs> actor's odyssey from Afghanistan to Hollywood and back. Fahim Fazli is the subject of Fahim Speaks. He was a volunteer translator for the U.S. Marines in Afghanistan. To learn more about their book, please visit our website, wgbh.org slash Callie Crossley. I'm Sue O'Connell. I've been in for Callie Crossley. Callie will be back tomorrow. She'll be talking local and national politics. The Callie Crossley Show is a production of WGBH, Boston Public Radio.